Welcome to Stacy on the Right with your host, Stacy Washington. All right, we've got a small town in Nebraska taking a pretty tough stance on illegal immigration. That's right. They are considering banning illegal immigrants from renting an apartment or getting a job. This as a new Costco plant is set to open in the area. Uh, the Scribner City Council, they need one more vote to pass this. And uh, the mayor of that town says that it does have the backing of the community. Well... Why do you think they want to do that? Welcome back to the program. Stacey Washington. StaceyOnTheRight.com is the website. You can hit the subscribe button. Uh, thanks for being here today. It's hump day. Getting on the little fast train through the week. Fun stuff going on. Really great opportunities for us to be Americans and to praise God and be grateful for being in this country. Uh, and it's really wonderful to be with you right now. I'm I'm. I'm wondering why this has taken so long, to be honest with you. Why has it taken so long for local municipalities to decide, you know what? I don't care what the ACLU is planning on doing to us. What I care about is having jobs for Americans. Now, let's be clear here. In a little town of 900, you're going to have significant unemployment in the town unless people are traveling to the larger metro area to work. So a plant being built there means there will be people who are traveling out to work at that plant from the larger city that they're adjacent to. There's nothing wrong with that. But what they're saying is they build a chicken processing plant, they hire all the illegal immigrants, and the people in the town have to watch as illegal immigrants ride in on buses to take advantage of these jobs, jobs that they as Americans are not getting chosen for. So what they're trying to do is preemptively set aside their opportunity, basically keep it for themselves to get these jobs. Their taxes are going to help pay for the, the, all of the, the infrastructure for this new chicken processing plant. They're the ones who live there and should be given an opportunity to vie for those jobs. But they know if there's a significant influx of illegal immigrants, that will depress wages and they will be the last chosen for those opportunities. Now, if ICE does a raid after the chicken processing plant opens up, we've covered this on the show before. Over and over and over again, it's been shown that when ICE raids chicken processing plants and they capture illegal immigrants and deport them, that the people who live in the town or the city near the chicken processing plant, the Americans, are the ones to replace those workers. So why not just cut out the middleman and hire the Americans from the get-go and give them the jobs? And if you think that's nativist or xenophobic, I think you need a dictionary. First, inform yourself on what words mean before you start coming at me with a whole bunch of insults. I really, I appreciate the engagement, but it has to be at the same level. We all have to agree that the dictionary is where we figure out what words mean, and then we go from there. So the next, the next kind of outrageous subject takes us back to Facebook. And so I was on Twitter this morning and I noticed that Mark Zuckerberg was trending. I'm like, oh, I wonder what's going on. Well, it turns out that he gave an interview to Recode. And it's because he's been before Congress testifying again. So, yay, you know, they're calling him on the carpet again. And I think they're seriously considering taking steps to, um, you know, hem Facebook up on their neutral public platform designation 
Because if they're not a neutral public platform, then they can be regulated like a utility. That's the last thing Facebook wants. And they're under siege from a lot of different organizations. We've talked here on the program before about Freedom from Facebook, which has now aligned itself with George Soros and his numerous, you know, organizations, which I, so I was totally thinking freedom from Facebook would be an interesting thing not to eliminate Facebook, but to make it less of a empire and more of a just a social networking platform and take away all the other businesses and let them stand alone. Um, but now that it's aligned with George Soros, I'm kind of reticent to throw my support behind it. So I'm kind of taking a, a wait and see. I'm holding back. But the reason he's trending is because of this interview. It's not actually because of his testimony before Congress, although that was pr pretty interesting, too. So what he said, here's the quote from what he said in the interview. He says, let's take, a let's take this a little closer to home. So the question was, why do you allow InfoWars to stay on Facebook? Because they deny that Sandy Hook occurred. InfoWars actually asserts, and full disclosure, I've been on a TV program. I've been interviewed on a TV program that is carried by the InfoWars network. I've never been on Alex Jones's show, um, mostly because they asked me to come on to discuss an issue, that a press release that we'd issued through Project 21. And I agreed to come on to discuss that issue. And then they went through my Facebook page and saw that I had defended Michelle Obama from, you know, people calling her a monkey. And I said that was the kind of discourse that is beneath the people in our movement. And so any defense of Michelle Obama puts you outside of what they'll have on Alex Jones's program. And they promptly canceled me. So, you know, I don't care when I do media. It's not because I'm endorsing the organization that I'm going on. I've been on Al Jazeera before. I obviously don't agree with them, but Al Jazeera America. But I go on these programs because it's an opportunity to spread the message that I'm trying to share for whatever issue we're tackling at the time. So anyway, you know, disclosure time over. So he's on Recode and he's doing this interview and he's talking about, um, you know, he's talking to Kara Swisher and she's interviewing him about the Russia hacking, the social network. He talks about how he warned the, the Republican National Committee that they'd been hacked by the Russians and so many other things that he knew that were going on. And so he's trying to defend the fact that InfoWars while they may be repugnant in their view that Sandy Hook never happened, and while that hurts the families of Sandy Hook victims, he's saying if they're a neutral public platform, he has to allow them to speak as long as they're not inciting violence. But then he turns to another reasoning where basically he says they're not intentionally lying because they truly believe Sandy Hook didn't happen. So it's not a malicious intent on their part. They just don't believe it happened. And they have every right to do that and to talk about that as long as they don't incite violence. And then he says, um, well, I also think that going to someone who is a victim of Sandy Hook and telling them, hey, no, you're a liar. That's harassment. And we will take that down. But overall, let's take a closer look at home. I'm Jewish and there's a whole set of people who deny that the Holocaust happened. I find that deeply offensive, but at the end of the day, I don't believe that our platform should take that down because I think there are things that different people get wrong. I don't think that they're intentionally getting it wrong, but I think, and Kara Swisher interjects and says, in the case of the Holocaust deniers, they might be, but go ahead. And he said, it's hard to impugn intent and to understand the intent. 
I just think as abhorrent as some of those examples are, I think the reality is also that I get things wrong when I speak publicly. I'm sure you do. I'm sure a lot of leaders and public figures we respect do too. And I just don't think it is the right thing to say we're going to take someone off of the platform if they get things wrong, even multiple times. What we will do is we'll say, okay, you have your page. And if you're not trying to organize harm against someone or attacking someone, then you can put up that content on your page, even if people might disagree with it or find it offensive. But that doesn't mean we have the responsibility to make it widely distributed in newsfeed. I think we actually, to the contrary, she says, so you move them down versus in Myanmar where you remove it. And, you know, they go on for a little bit, um, you know, back and forth on the rudimentary aspects of how Facebook prioritizes some things and moves other things down in the newsfeed. And he is getting savaged on Twitter for this because what people want to see is, Mark Zuckerberg saying Holocaust deniers can't be on Facebook. Um, Sandy Hook truthers can't be on Facebook. 9-11 truthers can't be on Facebook. He wants to see certain, these people on the left want to see certain types of speech banned. Now, I find it absolutely repugnant that anyone would deny that Sandy Hook, the mass shooting happened, or that anyone would deny that the Holocaust happened. I don't run a multinational face you know uh, social network platform like facebook uh, so i don't have the thorny issues to face to to discuss to try to figure out to work my way through i think his example of using the holocaust and holocaust deniers it's narrow-minded the, the response that he gave because if it were as simple as what he shared most people wouldn't care if someone's just spouting off about something that they don't think is true, that is true, that happened, that's quantifiably, it's, it's evidentiary, we can, we can prove that the Holocaust occurred. I've been to Dachau, I've been to Auschwitz, we know it happened. Um, but that's not the problem here. The problem is that Holocaust deniers also validate people who practice radical Islam and their desire to eradicate Jewish people, the entire people group that comes, you know, that, that are Jewish in their extraction from the entire face of the planet. There's a form of radical Islam that believes that Jews have to be eradicated from the face of the planet. They also believe that the West, specifically the United States, the great infidel, has to be completely annihilated as well. Every person, man, woman, and child, and every vestige of our society has to be wiped from the face of the earth. People who believe that take comfort in websites and pages on Facebook that talk about the Holocaust never happening and that it's something that the West made up to make people more sympathetic to Jewish people. The fact that Mark Zuckerberg doesn't know that is disturbing. I mean, you know, there's, oh, I just didn't know about that. And then there's, how could you not know about that? That's the category he's in. How could he not know that? So I'm, I'm not for censorship. But there's censorship and then there's stopping individuals who are literally screaming fire or bomb in a crowded theater. Our First Amendment delineates between those two types of speech. You've got people who are lying, people who are slandering, people who are defaming, lying. That's actually not against the law. Defaming and slandering. That's against the law, but not if people are public figures. (laughs) I mean, there's a lot there's a lot of nuance to it. But the First Amendment even recognizes that speech can be harmful if it's used to incite violence or used to incite panic. He doesn't seem to understand. 
And so that's why he's getting savaged on Twitter. So I'm reading that, right? I'm, re- I'm reading the tweets. I'm, I'm reading the links in the tweets. I'm reading about his statements about uh, the, the, the Holocaust deniers and, and allowing them to remain on Facebook. And so there's two other pieces of news that I stumble across in, in reading that. And one of them is over on Drudge. So it's, it's like not just on the Twitter feed. And it talks about how there was a page that literally called for sh- active shooters. It said shooters out there get your guns together and go shoot Republicans on baseball fields. You should shoot and assassinate Republicans. And there are numerous posts on this page telling people who might be inclined to be uh, uh, mass shooters to go out and find Republicans and kill them. When the page was reported by a Republican staffer to Facebook, Facebook replied, this does not violate any of our community standards. So then when Mark Zuckerberg and one of his CEOs or one of his people, they're testifying on Capitol Hill today, they actually asked him about it. Or actually, it was not today. It was yesterday, I believe. They asked him about it and he said, oh, well, that should not. That's incorrect. He also apologized to Diamond and Silk for the throttling of their page. And he said, we actually were improper in our communications to them and we owe them an apology for the way they were treated we welcome their content on facebook and we're happy that they have a voice so it's it's all because now that the furor has died down and the cameras have moved away we're faced with lawmakers literally deciding based on his testimony whether or not they're going to allow facebook to continue to operate in its current form or if they're going to regulate it like a utility because it's not a neutral platform so now they actually have to seriously act as if Facebook is a neutral platform, which is fantastic, but it's also very telling that this is what it took to get him there. Why? Well, here's why. Over at the politicalinsider.com, they have a story up about how Mark Zuckerberg, back in the day when he was at Harvard, he hacked journalists' emails to find out if they were going to write negative stories about him. He said, if you ever need info about anyone at Harvard, just ask, wrote the 19-year-old Mark Zuckerberg. The year was 2004, and Zuckerberg was then still a Harvard student, launching a new social network that at the time he called The Facebook. I have over 4,000 emails, pictures, and addresses. Zuckerberg's friend, whose name is redacted in the chat logs, expressed disbelief. What? How'd you manage that one? Zuckerberg said, people just submitted it. I don't know why. They trust me. Dumb expletives. So when he knew he'd be testifying before Congress about protecting user privacy, he probably didn't think about this story coming out about what he did the last time. He thought people might say bad things about him. It's interesting, to say the least. When we get back, we're going to have Nikki Neely, president and founder of Speech First, right here on Stacey on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Keep it here. Eighty percent of the time, an abortion-minded mother who views an ultrasound or sonogram of her baby will choose life. Here's the story of Candace. The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen. And knowing that there's life growing inside, I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just Candace to mom. Thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. There are currently preborn centers which do not have an ultrasound machine. 
Would you sponsor a machine today? Dial pound 250 and say keyword baby. That's pound 250 and say baby. Or go to preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Your love can save a life. Hello, this is Bishop Harry Jackson of Hope Christian Church in Beltsville, Maryland. Jesus said you would do greater works than he did. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way to Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here. The Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. If we'll go emotionally and spiritually where they went physically, we'll come into the truths and the transforming and transferring of the mantle that happened with Elisha will happen with us in our generation. Elijah was the old school generation. He was the 84, 85 year old, nearly 90 year old, who has been the Billy Graham of the generation. And he says, I've walked with you, I've talked with you, I've told you, I've helped you, I've instructed you. Now, son, it's your turn. This is about passing the baton generationally. Some of us who are my age have to recognize that the 80-some-year-olds are all rolling off the scene, and whether we think ourselves to be young, small in our own sight, we're going to have to step up and be the only spiritual fathers that this generation can know. Join us this Sunday morning at 6251 Amondale Road in Beltsville or on the web at thehopeconnection.org. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the program. Thanks for being with us today. Um, really interesting news day for us. And I'll finish up wrapping up that uh, additional detail on the hacking that Mark Zuckerberg did into uh, the email accounts of reporters who were wanting to do a story on him after this segment. But right now, it's my pleasure to welcome our next guest. A fascinating story out of the University of Minnesota. It's Nikki Neely, president and founder of Speech First. Thank you for joining the show today. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, so I'm interested in hearing about this because I often will read these stories and we'll do press releases through Project 21. Uh, we often talk about the crazy kind of loopy behavior that's going on, on on university campuses across the country. And this one is is it's kind of in that same vein, but it's even crazier than some of the other stories. Can you tell us what's going on there? Sure. Um, yeah, and you're totally right. When I first started working in the free speech area, I thought, you know, some of this has to be a little bit overblown. It has to be hype. And then, like you said, once you start to dig down, you think, oh, my gosh, it's all true. And some of it is even worse than I even expected it to be. Um, (laughs) So what is going on at the University of Minnesota is they have a um, a proposed policy. It hasn't yet taken effect. They are um, trying to gather information and feedback from people in the community right now about whether they should – they have a new proposed gender pronoun policy. And this would be that um, students get to choose their preferred pronoun. There is a list of them, um, which includes 
I don't know how to pronounce them. If there's one with an X, there's one with a Z, you can call yourself a them, um, in addition to the normal he, she, her. Um, and if, if a student or a faculty member uses the incorrect one, then it's, you, you could be opened up to disciplinary proceedings, including expulsion or firing. And so this is a pretty significant step, and this is obviously a major shot across the bow in the ongoing political correctness and culture wars on campus. And so it's a very, very troubling um, proposed policy. And so I, I really, I hope that University of Minnesota gets some common sense and doesn't pass this policy. So I, I, I always, my question to this is always, how are we supposed to remember all of the different pronouns if everyone has, you know, 57 or 299 of them that they can choose from? How do you remember, like, when you're just passing a person or do you just not talk to them because you can't remember what their pronoun is? Because I don't even understand how the pronouns come into play. No, that's a great question. And I have talked to students who now, yeah, in their dorm room at orientation when they first move in and in classes, they go around the room, they do the pronoun. I, my name is Nikki. I use the pronouns she and her. Um, and you're supposed to take notes. Um, but yeah, I think you do very much get in a situation where, I mean, I was at a conference recently and I didn't know how to refer to somebody. So I just didn't talk to them. And so at the risk of being offensive, I actually was just flagrantly rude. Um, so yeah, it, it, puts, it puts people in a really difficult position because um, they're terrified. And this is, I mean, this is just this trend we've seen on campus where um, using the, um, this would be under the harassment and bullying code. And so using, um, using that to promote civility, which on its face sounds like a good thing. Of course, we want civility. Um, but it ends up discouraging people from talking or acting at all out of a fear of, of offending somebody. All right. So, all right, Nikki, full disclosure. Um, so we have our oldest daughter is going to college here in a few weeks. And so we visited exactly. a number of colleges over the past year. Like, you know how you, we're near this town. Oh, there's a great college there and it's on your list. So you go visit or you take the intentional trip where you literally drive there, you stay in the hotel, you visit, you know. So every right. dorm that we visited on the, the more, the larger schools, um, even in Catholic schools, we, we visited a few schools that are Jesuit. We visited some public universities, we visited some private ones. And in the private universities, the, especially the smaller ones, there were no there were no designations. But the larger, even a Christian university, um, Belmont, the, which is a it's it's a good sized Christian university, very well respected. Yeah, they had, yeah. yeah, they had a the pronoun. So it's not like a mandatory thing, but almost every dorm door had a a one of those whiteboards on it. And some of the doors had preferred pronouns on them. Now, not everyone did, but some did at St. Louis university where we visited every door had either a small tag, like a door hang tag that was taped to the door or on the whiteboard. It said preferred pronouns. Now we didn't visit every floor, obviously, but we visited two sections of two dorms and you know, they were pretty, pretty ubiquitous everywhere. So I know it's more prevalent in some universities than others, but I, I, do you feel like this University of Minnesota policy, once it becomes more widely known, is something that will deter parents from, you know, recommending, hey, go to the University of Minnesota, or are people just going to ignore this and just stop talking to each other? No, I mean, I think definitely there's the public attention on it, I think is probably going to play a role in them um, enacting this. And frankly, I would be surprised if, if they did pass it, if it weren't challenged in court. Um, but it is, you know, you raise a really good point in that, you know, when I went to college a very long time ago, it... Mm-hmm. Um, when you went to school, you looked at, okay, is it, what's the tuition? What's my scholarship? 
is it in state? Is it out of state? Yes. Um, and now you have to take into account a lot more variables. Does this align with my values? Um, what does the what, what do the disciplinary procedures look like? How are Title IX issues on campus adjudicated? I have a, I, I have a whole, uh, my oldest child is a son, and there are schools where I mean you see them in the news how it's very much a guilty until proven innocent system. And there are schools that I just simply won't send my child to, um, and so this is a much more complex uh, equation than it used to be, you know, 50 years ago. I agree. In fact, that's something that we will really have to look at for next year because we'll have another one graduating and and he is he's our only son. We only have the one. And you're right. That is something that is super important because on those campuses where the guys are automatically guilty, they have their lives ruined, they're expelled from school, they often have their reputations ruined. And then later you find out they were innocent. The girl just, you know, oh, I I thought it was him, but it wasn't things like that. And there's nothing worse than having someone be sexually assaulted and and then not have justice. But by the same token, there's nothing worse than having your son accused of sexual assault when they're they're innocent and having to go through all of that. And that is another thing that people should consider. And that's why I love having guests like yourself on the show to kind of elucidate these things or take a little note if you have kids graduating from high school, going to college, and you're looking at campuses that you have to check those things out. These are new new things you have to look at besides tuition, room and board, you know, environment, you now you have to worry about the professors, whether or not the college has been in the news. Um, and now all of this pronoun stuff, which is a, an utter waste of time to take a half of a class period or a whole class period to figure out what people want to be called. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, if there is definitely a market mechanism in place, um, as we saw in the wake of everything that happened at Mizzou in 2015, um, at Evergreen State College in, in Washington State in 2017. Um, there are people, there are parents who are pulling their kids out. There are parents that are not going there. Um, these schools have started to report what their enrollment numbers are. I think Mizzou is down 30%, which translates to a huge amount of money. They've had to lay off a lot of staff. They've closed seven dorms. Um, yeah, and so this is, there is a real, and I think that's the thing that ends up getting to the administrators in the end is the money. But this is, um, there are financial repercussions for you making bad decisions. Um, and and that's, you know what, that's the market at work. Well, and you know what, Nikki, we've talked about Evergreen State College because theirs have honestly been the weirdest out of all of those stories. Theirs have they 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 get the the prize. If there was an award, Evergreen State College would get it. I honestly think they're on a mission to destroy their school because all every news story is more bizarre than the one before. But when you talk about Mizzou, that's a school that we actually encouraged our daughter to take a look at because we're in state. You know, we live in Missouri. And she would have been, it, it was a world-class school. Mizzou is actually, it had, they have a number of their programs are considered world-class. Their journalism. The journalism program is one of the best in the country. One of the best in the country. And the if you have a business degree from there, if you have a communications degree from there, they're not, those are, those are good, good degrees to have. And their veterinary medicine program, pre-vet and the actual vet program, top 26 in the country. So this is a place where if you have certain interests, it's a great value. But now that they've been in the news for that, their reputation has decreased so much here that it's not even the parents who have to say anything. My daughter actually came home and said, yeah, Mizzou's not on my list anymore. I was like, you're a junior. What do you mean it's not? It's We're in state. You at least We should at least visit. She said, mom, no, no, it's not for me. They're too, it's too political. I, I'm a biology major. I was like, whoa. I told my husband, I said, wow, we've, ra- we've raised some strong-minded kids. He was like, she reads the news too. I'm sure she's seen the news. 
And she said, it's the, it's the news stories. I just can't be that. That's too distracting for me. College is going to be hard enough. That is an amazing indictment of a university for, from at the time she was a junior. So, you know, yeah. uh, it's bad news and for I these schools. Talk, I have talked to students at other schools who are in the sciences, and they said before in the run-up to the 2016 election, one, one student who was a physics major said, um, he had a professor, a science professor, say, you know, I hope you all do the right thing and you vote for Hillary. And that's, I mean, that has nothing to do with the content. It has nothing to do with the, with the class. That's just, you're just superimposing your views. And, I mean, I remember listening to an, a story years ago. It was an interview with um, Thomas Sowell, who said at the end of a semester of teaching, his, his students came up to him and said, honestly, we don't know what, you know, where do you stand? We don't, we can't tell if you're a Democrat or a Republican. He said he felt that that was one of the highest compliments he could be paid as a professor. And those days are long gone. Yes, they are. And he is a brilliant, like he's, he's a national treasure. Don't we all wish our kids could take a few classes from him at the collegiate level and Absolutely. take some of that knowledge home? You know what I mean? It's like, oh, we have his books and we have the columns and we just have to satisfy ourselves with that. But I think not only is that an amazing story of, of his, his philosophy, but so many others would do well to, if you want to really have students voting the way that they should vote, then educate them. Make sure they know the history of this country. Make sure they know the the facts, which, you know, math, it's either right or it's wrong. It doesn't lie. It doesn't have a political affiliation. Math is math. And it's the same with the sciences. And when we return to that, we're going to see more world-class educational outcomes from, from our, our uh, higher education. We're not seeing as much of that now. And I think I think what the liberals do, they're so good at it, but it's a horrible indictment on them is that... They really don't understand when they're being rebuked or repudiated. And so they carry on. They're like, oh, you just don't get it. We just, we just have to you know, drum this into you some more. All of this gender pronoun stuff is being rejected by the majority of the students. The active minority of students who, uh, who like it and want to enforce it on everyone else, they're not the majority. And they're the ones who are damaging these, these schools. Yeah, it, you know, it's been interesting to me to see um, how different actors in the state have, have, have um, reacted to this. There's um, a newish group that um, was created by a bunch of professors called Heterodox Academy, and it was started by a professor at NYU named Jonathan Haidt, who is a self-identified liberal, but he said, you know what, we believe in, he's a, he's a clinical psychologist, we believe in the pursuit of truth, and in academia, it's gone so far one way that there's not actually, you're not actually having constructive discussions with your colleagues, where one thing, you know, the scientific method, your ideas get better if they're challenged and re-examined and you kind of, you know, you pursue truth, but you need to, you need to have a dialogue and a back and forth. And if you have a department, no matter what it is, be it the sciences, be it the humanities, where everybody thinks the same and everybody agrees, um, that's really, that's not a very enriching environment to work in, to, to try and come, you know, write new, new articles, to um, submit things to a law review. You want people who disagree with you, so they challenge you. And so um, that's the whole purpose of Heterodox Academy is to get professors together um, who, who say we need more intellectual diversity on campuses that will make our, our institution stronger. Well, I hope they're successful. I hope it catches on because I, one of the things that I think is so interesting about the dynamic that we're seeing is, is I'm not interested in forcing anyone to agree with me or to a- adopt my viewpoint. I do think that people should be able to say, we've been doing X, Y, and Z for this many months, years, whatever, and it's not worked, maybe we should consider something else. But to say you have to flip and become a Republican or you have to flip and you know, go against something that you believe, at least you have to consider that you could be wrong. 
but you don't have to change your mind. And I think what we're seeing on these campuses with this, like this pronoun stuff is basically it's at the beginning of the school year. Everyone's sitting there. You have to take notes and they're saying you have to believe this. You have to agree that there are more than two genders, even though that goes against science. It goes against like there. It's, it's this authoritarian bent that's coming out of a lot of this stuff that is really to me, it's baffling. And I just, I, I know it's not going to work because people in America, especially don't want to be ruled over and ordered around. Exactly. And it is, I mean, it is, it is fundamentally disrespectful to others to say, you know what? I don't think, you don't deserve to hear from other people or you have the wrong point of view. I mean, that is, I used to work at the Independent Women's Forum. That is the antithesis of feminism, right? I mean, to, to, that women can do things on their own. We can all think for ourselves. And it's just, it's just to assume that your colleagues can't be exposed to other opinions or points of view is, um, is, is just is, is so offensive to me. That's so patently condescending and, and offensive that um, I'm, I'm surprised that people put up with it. And they, and they acquiesce, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, not only do we put up with it, but it, I think it's because people want to be nice and they, they find it baffling and crazy too, but they're like, well, if we just agree with this, you know, what, what could it hurt? But what it's hurting right. is well, it's we, wasting a lot of time, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've also seen the rise of, of a call-out culture too, right? Where somebody who has transgressed is called out, they're publicly saying their employers are contacted. So, I mean, why on earth would you want to stick your head up and have an opinion outside the mainstream? if you know that that might happen to you. If you criticize one of your colleagues and then suddenly you're slashed all over Twitter and you're fired from your job, I mean, this is these tremendous disincentives. And this is, it, it has killed public discourse. People are afraid to, um, to express opinions that they think others might condemn them for. Mm. Well, I think that, that's, you know what that is. When, and I know if you have kids who are in there, you know, going to college, pre-college, all that, then you, you've had this conversation around the table too, Nikki. I, what we say to our kids is either you're willing to stand up, and it doesn't mean you're standing up all the time. You're not pontificating. You're not jumping up on the table every time there's a topic. But if you are forced to take a stand and you don't, you're basically giving in to that idea and you're agreeing with it through your silence. And it's, it's tough, but you have to start talking to kids about that early so they know when to draw the line and when to take a stand. But they have to be willing to do that. And it it's, takes courage. Um, I really appreciate your work previously at the Independent Women's Forum, which we love here on the show. And now, uh, President and Founder of Speech First, Nikki, thank you for joining in today. Thank you for having me. All right. Talk to you again soon. Um, we'll be back with more Stacy on the Right here on Urban Family Talk and American Family Radio right after these messages. You can call in at 866-963-2037 and uh, find out more at AFR.net and UrbanFamilyTalk.com. This is Just a Minute with Stacey Washington. Did you know that the Centers for Disease Control did a study on defensive gun use by Americans? Probably not, because the report destroys gun control talking points. A Florida State University criminologist didn't know either and did his own analysis, which showed that Americans used guns to successfully defend themselves against attackers over 2.2 million times a year. This number is based upon an unweighted nationally representative sample of over 12,000 individuals. Data from the CDC confirms this result. In fact, 
CDC data proves Americans used firearms to defend themselves 3.6 times more often than perpetrators utilized firearms to attack them. This information was kept private by the CDC because it doesn't support the gun grabber's mantra that all guns are bad. Instead of hiding data, let's spread the truth far and wide. Lawful gun owners use weapons to defend themselves and others millions of times every year. Sounds like gun control to me. I'm Stacey Washington. Find out more at StaceyOnTheRight.com. It's time to call your senators. We need to tell them to put an end to the liberals' filibuster, switch to a majority vote, and defund Planned Parenthood. Call the Capitol switchboard at 202-224-3121 or go to afaaction.net. Senators respond to constituent calls. So call 202-224-3121 and tell your senators to switch to a majority vote and defund Planned Parenthood. Your call will make a difference. Listen to Stacy on the Right with Stacy Washington on Urban Family Talk. She's sharp. I mean, did you hear that? Pointed. Remember that you're not only a Christian on Sunday. And insightful. Deception and lies have been accepted as the norm from the Democrats. But most of all, she's on the right. That scripture from the Bible that says the heart of the fool inclines to the left just <laughs> kept popping into my mind. Stacy on the Right. Now heard weekday afternoons from 2 to 4 Central on Urban Family Talk. Netflix continues to ignore the outcry about 13 Reasons Why. The American Family Association, along with Parents Television Council and several other pro-family groups have reached out to the streaming service, urging the cancellation of their program. Netflix has not even responded to our letter. Instead, they released an even more vile season two and are producing season three. Netflix CEO Reed Hastings says their program is engaging and that it fosters discussion of taboo topics like suicide and sexual assault. But at what cost? 14-year-old Anna Bright and several other teens have committed suicide after watching the show. Hastings calls our objections propaganda. Does he feel the profitability of his company is worth more than the lives damaged or lost because of his show? Please sign our petition to Netflix, learn more, and share our action alert when you visit afa.net. And pray Reed Hastings will recognize the dangers of 13 Reasons Why. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right. There are differences in, in their testimony. In many cases, she admits uh, that the text messages mean exactly what they say, as opposed to Agent Strzok, um, who thinks that we've all misinterpreted his own words on any text message that might be negative. Uh, she was evidently behind closed doors trying to diminish her importance, but made no qualms about the fact she's a Democrat and didn't want Donald Trump to be elected. The question is, what did she do about it? I hear from people uh, behind the scenes that uh, people appreciate her cooperation. She came off extremely mm -hmm. intelligent and smart and forthcoming, considering what she's been through personally over the last year. I'm not saying your right. heart goes out to her, but after what we saw with Peter Strzok for right. 10 hours, you appreciate some humility. That's evidently what she displayed. Right. He's found excuse in the book that people are taking it out of context right. he didn't actually mean that I'm assuming their their love life isn't going well anymore I, I think it's I done it's I think it's insurance plan we don't know uh, what are you gonna do to stop them we don't know we don't know the names a lot of the people listening to the IG report were also conspiring right. to do the best they can or at least have opinions about how bad a person Donald Trump was right. and if you're Donald Trump how can you think anything but the FBI uh, under the previous administration was out to get him. The deputy so gone, the uh, James Comey fired, uh, Peter Strzok is 
if he is not uh, sullied and destroyed uh, personally and with all his right. credibility, I don't know what is. Well, Peter Strzok answered all those questions about the insurance policy and stuff. He gave his answer. She gave her answers yesterday. Uh, we may never know exactly because she's apparently not going to be appearing in public. So she's not going to appear in public. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Stacey Washington, host of Stacey on the Right. Um, so you've got Fox and Friends hosts Brian Kilmeade and others discussing Lisa Page's testimony. And directly after that, you had Representative Radcliffe sharing a bit of info on Lisa Page's testimony. So we have to get these kind of secondhand tidbits because we got nothing direct from her because she's testifying behind closed doors. I have to say that it was the worst kind of buffoonery from the Democrats during these uh, the hearing of Peter Strzok, where they were screaming and interjecting and, you know, just constantly interrupting. And the, the only the saving grace for them is that it wasn't broadcast on network television. Most Americans did not hear it. Um, there were very few networks that carried it live. If you wanted to hear it, you had to go to C-SPAN or pull C-SPAN up on your TuneIn app on your phone. Everybody else just missed it unless they heard clips on shows like this one. Um, and the clips really didn't do it justice because it was so difficult to listen to the way the Democrats carried themselves over and over and over again. So the the good news here is no matter how they behave, no one gets to see it. And I bet you anything, you know, dollars to donuts, the individuals who are in the hearing with Lisa Page aren't screaming and yelling. Um, there's no interruptions. It's, it's probably very, very calm and very, very easy to to get through because there are cameras because people perform for the cameras. And so it, Representative Radcliffe talked a little bit about he obviously he can't tell everything that occurred there, but he can share a little um, of his reactions to it. It's number two. Has there been a difference in the answers that he gave versus what Lisa Page uh, told you yesterday and what she might tell you tomorrow? So I can't get into the content of uh, the testimony uh, from Lisa Page yet. What I can tell you is that Congressman Gowdy and I uh, had two hours to question her on Friday. I can tell you that there are significant differences in yeah. her testimony from uh, Agent Strzok uh, as it relates uh, to these text messages, what she thought some of them meant. And she gave us new information mm -hmm. that he either wouldn't or couldn't that confirm some of the concerns that we have about these investigations and the people involved in running. So that's what we've seen. This is so fascinating because he's basically saying Peter Strzok denied a lot. And Lisa Page just said, yeah, the text messages read how we meant them. In other words, that's what we thought we were doing. Now what? Can you imagine what would have happened if Strzok had been so candid? If he just said, yeah, we thought we were going to stop him. And we didn't. But we tried. Now what? I mean, I've already been let go of my job. I'm already pulling a desk in HR, sitting around. You know, it's, lying doesn't help me at all. So I might as well just tell you the truth. At the time, we felt he was an existential threat. And so we tried to stop him. That I mean, it was just it would have been so refreshing. Um, but he didn't. And so now we're stuck with the fact that they're now disagreeing with each other. They were formerly lovers and now they're not. 
and they're both married, um, both, you know, had these horrible public revelations shared about their relationship and their spouses had to hear it really just, it's the worst of the worst kind of stuff. And it, it, it brings into clear focus why the FBI, oddly enough, when they do background checks, they look into not just the financial picture and the trustworthiness of the people that they're, they're checking, but they also check to see if there's any evidence of extramarital relationships. And the reason they do that is because when they have extramarital affairs, these agents and people who have security clearances open themselves up to blackmail. And the last thing you want is someone who has access to secrets being blackmailed for those secrets. And that is what these two open themselves up to. Now, that's not what we're alleging happened, but they did open themselves up to it. So um, now I want to get to marriage and family. Um, interesting new study out. Demographic researchers are finding that millennials are getting married later. They're actually delaying marriage until women are 27 on average and the men are 29. Now, they're primarily attributing this to finances. They're saying that millennials who were coming out of college during the recession weren't able to find jobs and they boomeranged back home. Ending up back at home means they weren't prepared to stand up, uh, you know, a family, which, you know, you and your spouse rent an apartment, buy a condo, et cetera, et cetera. But I want to bring one more little thing to it. I want to bring one more aspect to it. So if you're grown up in relative affluence as a millennial and you come out of college and you have a lot of debt and you've not had marriage prioritized by your parents and your family, they haven't deprioritized it, but they haven't prioritized it. You're really going to be much more interested in establishing yourself financially than starting a family. And so I think this is, this goes, this always comes back to what we teach our kids. We want our kids to be successful, more successful than we have been. But we're in the generation now of kids coming out of college or coming out of the household at 18 or 20 or whatever, that they're the first generation that they are saying they may not do as well as their parents did or better than their parents did. And that phenomenon has people spooked and afraid. Now, I want to caution against that because I think First of all, the fear comes from the enemy. Anytime we're operating in fear, that's the enemy. That is against what we're supposed to be doing, thinking. It's, it's, it's not biblical. Second of all, delaying starting a family to 27 or 28 or 29 is not in and of itself a bad thing. But with current child rearing expectations that you put three years in between each child, which we didn't do that in our family and everybody turned out fine. And so I encourage people to have their families structured the way it works best for them, not following any rubric. You have to have this many months between each child or each child will be to this or to that. That's all garbage. Families are whatever families are when you're having your kids, if they're close together, if they're spaced out, if they're in little clumps, two here, three there, that is your affair. And you should never allow anyone to make you feel like your family's weird. I remember a lady who, uh, she told me repeatedly when our kids were in the same age range, she had two kids and they were two years apart exactly. And they did that on purpose. And all of our other friends had kids who were three years apart or two years apart exactly. And then we have our kids, the first two are 15 months apart. And then the third one came two years after the second so we don't have the every other 
or every two years that we don't have any of that stuff going on. And so she said, I, it's, it's so funny when I see you with your youngest and your first two are ones in kindergarten and ones in first grade. And I said, what's funny about it? She said, well, it's just weird. And I was like, why? And she said, well, they're not spaced apart. Did you do that on purpose? And I was like, no, I, no more explanation is needed. No, we didn't do that on purpose. Now what? What is she going to do? Go back in time and re- reorder our family? Now, I was younger back then and so much nicer. Um, and I just encourage you to find your voice and to not allow someone to make you feel as if the family structure that you've chosen or that it is what's happening in your family is any way weird or not acceptable or not normal. It is only weird to someone who is basically meddling in your family's affairs because what could she do about it except try to make me feel bad about it, which I didn't feel bad about it. So when we're talking about this this phenomenon of kids getting these millennials getting married later, what they're now saying is that marriage is now a symbol of class status in the U.S. And that's what happens when something becomes rare. It becomes a class status symbol. It becomes something that isn't attainable by everyone. And that's more garbage from the media. It's garbage. And the reason it's garbage is because if you're working class and you budget and you're taking good you know, care of your finances, meaning paying your bills, et cetera, et cetera, then you can get married and have a family. This isn't about everyone being, you know, a, a above the median household income family. People can be happy and have a family and not make $80,000 a year. You don't, it, that's, that's not the mandatory minimum before you can start having a family or getting married. The other thing they cite is that weddings are so expensive and it takes so much resource to, to put on a wedding nowadays. Well, sure, if you want a wedding like the ones you see on Bridezilla or HGTV or, or something like that. But a lot of millennials are choosing that they, they love their, the person they're in love. They want to have a family. They want to get married. And they're getting married in their parents' backyard or at a park. They're getting married in venues that don't cost $10,000 for two hours. They're not hiring a wedding planner. They're not having you know $20,000 of flowers, $20,000 of catering, and then a $50,000 honeymoon afterwards. Those are things that look great for the Kardashians, but they're not required. So our expectations, if we allow the worldly expectations to creep into what we want, yeah, everyone will get married later, we'll have fewer children, the family sizes will be smaller, our demographics will continue to spiral downwards when it comes to the birth rate, and people won't be as happy. The fact is, if you want to have three or four or five kids, you want to get married in a beautiful ceremony on your parents, you know, your grandparents' farm or some farm, the the farm of your neighbor, your neighbor's farm, and you want to get married and have an affordable wedding that costs less than $5,000 and you want to go on a honeymoon that you can afford that costs less than $5,000 and be done with it and not have any debt and then start a family and have your kids as they come instead of meticulously planning and acting like you're some kind of wizard of, of childbearing. Why not do that? Why not make yourself happy? And when I say that, this is what God calls us to do. We're not supposed to get married or decide to get married based on what everyone else is doing. We're supposed to be talking to him and then, you know, take some wise counsel from your own family instead of these outsiders who don't care anything about you. They just want something to talk about. I think it's sad that millennials feel like they're not making enough money to get married. Now, for some of them who have taken on hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loan debt and their student loan debt is the same as, uh, you know, a house payment or a condo payment, and they can't afford to get a condo, they have to live at home with their parents, 
that's a different story. But that again comes into us parents speaking to these kids and talking to them about what's realistic. You might want to go to Washington University for where the tuition is fifty-five thousand a year plus room and board and books and expenses. But it might be smarter to go to another school where you can graduate with no debt. It might be smarter to say that, you know, Midwest Ivy League education sounds fantastic or I want to go here, I want to go there. But the offer they've made you means you're going to have to take on a lot of debt. And so that beautiful campus and that posh dorm room aren't going to mean anything to you once you've graduated and you're not there anymore. All you need is the diploma in your degree field so that you can move on and get the job that you want to get. These are things we have to talk to our kids about. And when we do that, they're going to make their own choice. In the end, the college your child decides to go to, if, you know, if you're not paying for it, they're going to go wherever they want. If you're helping to pay, they're still going to have some say in where they decide to go. But if we don't start being more blunt and honest and factual about the way life works with our kids before they get to the college area. I'm talking about when they're, you know, 13 and 14 and they're like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And we start being realistic. You're not crushing their dreams. You're just teaching them about the way the world works, teaching them about how important it is to start your family when you're in your 20s, especially for women. For women, having your childbearing years begin in the 20s is the key to being able to have more than one child. Because the eggs get old. We have to talk to our kids about this stuff. It doesn't mean it's a drag or it's a, you know, you're being a Debbie Downer. It just means you're being wise and you're instilling that wisdom in your kids. If you get married at 29 or 27, it's not the end of the world. But nobody should be waiting until they're like, you know, wealthy beyond all means and they're reigning paper to get married and start a family. It's just the world's ideas of what is needed creeping in and crushing the dreams of so many people. And I think we can fight back against that with the truth. As parents, we owe our kids that information. And what do we get out of it? Hopefully some grandkids. (laughs) All right. That's the show for today. We'll be back with you tomorrow. God bless. Have a great evening. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of Urban Family Talk, Urban Family Communications, or American Family Association.